0: Last week, uh, we finished our series in First Corinthians, a series that we've been going through for 16 months, and it's, it's over now, and, and our next book will be uh, "The Book of First Samuel." We will begin that on the first Sunday of January, but we have a few things to do first. I, I desire to take some time around this time of year, as we do typically around several holidays, and focus in our hearts and our minds on these holidays. Um, on, on perhaps the biblical ways in which we can take these holidays and direct them. Uh, we shouldn't necessarily have to say such a thing around the time such as Christmas or, or Resurrection Sunday in the time of Easter, but it's, it's at a point in our culture, as we talked about a little bit in Sunday school this morning, where uh, we do. Where culture no longer recognizes the holiday the same way a Christian would. And there's two different ways that we can approach this. Both ways are valid. We can reject the holiday outright, which many Christians have done with Christmas and Easter and these sorts of things. And, and that's, that's fine. There's nothing in the Bible that commands us that we are to celebrate these holidays. And, and so many form the conviction that, that we, we just, we're just going to ignore it. We're just not going to go there. It's been paganized. It has pagan roots. Uh, it's been paganized again. So why do we, why do we need it? And that's fine. But the Scriptures do teach us that there is, there is something special about memorials. Israel had several holidays, several feast days, several times where they were to memorialize things. There was the Feast of Passover, which was intended to memorialize the day in Egypt when the angel of the Lord passed through all of Egypt and slew the firstborn of any who did not have the blood on the doorposts of their house. In, commandment to, uh, in obedience to the Lord's command. They had tabernacles or booths where the people of Israel stayed in a tent or, or a, a, a thatch hut, uh, memorializing the time that they spent wandering in the wilderness. The Jews have added other ones throughout the years. The Feast of Hanukkah uh, typically takes place around this time of year, the 24th day of the ninth month and the Hebrew calendar fluctuates with our Gregorian calendar, so it's not always at the same time every year, but it's around this time of year that Hanukkah takes place. And that time of Hanukkah is intended to to be a memorial of when during the Maccabean Revolution they rededicated the temple after the wicked Syrian king Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple. That was the day upon which they rededicated the temple. And so they made that into the Feast of Lights, the Feast of the Dedication, Hanukkah. There's the Feast of Purim, the twelfth month of the Hebrew calendar to memorialize the deliverance of Israel from a particular wicked man named Haman. We read about him in the book of Esther. Haman tried to destroy the Jews. He was a very wicked man and the Jews were delivered by God through Esther the queen. And so they celebrate every year uh, by Mordecai's command the Feast of Purim where the Lord delivered them. And so there is something right about memorials. Our memorials don't necessarily have to coincide with the world's memorials, but we, we have some elements, some memorials that are established in this culture and there's nothing that says that we can't celebrate them just because the world is abusing them. And so we come around this time of Christmas and it's a wonderful time for us to reflect upon the incarnation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the miracle of His birth. So I'm going to preach a three-part message, one this morning, one this evening, one the Sunday morning I get back. This morning, the God of Christmas past as we consider Jesus Christ's birth. This evening, the God of Christmas present as we consider how Jesus Christ is ministering to us today in two weeks, the God of Christmas future. As we consider what Jesus Christ has for us tomorrow, the next day, until the day that He returns. And as we consider this morning the miraculous birth of our Savior, I'd like us to begin by simply thinking about what we would call the nativity story. You are perhaps familiar with the record of his birth, but last week we sang a song, and after that song, it was right at the end of the service, I, I had mentioned that the traditional Christmas story is inaccurate. And perhaps some of you were kind of scratching your heads a little bit, if you haven't been with us for Christmas before, saying, well, what, what what's inaccurate, or, or I, I hear you saying these things are inaccurate, Pastor. Why haven't I never heard this before? Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. But let's walk through the actual chronology of events and then we're going to focus in on a few phrases for our, our time together this morning. Jesus was a child born of a woman named Mary. She was a woman of virtue who had been blessed by God with the privilege of bearing the Messiah. Mary was a virgin and the Scriptures describe in Luke 1.35 that the Holy Ghost came upon her, the power of the highest overshadowed her, and the holy thing which would be born of her would be called the Son of God. This child would have no earthly father, and by having no earthly father, he fulfilled the miraculous promises of God throughout through the prophets that a virgin would conceive and bear a child, and that child would be named Emmanuel, he would also bypass the sin nature rooted in Adam, passed from father to child, and he would become qualified to be Messiah through the miraculous virgin birth. The epistle of Matthew tells us that things went as one might expect when people around Mary found out that she was pregnant. They naturally and rightly assumed that she had been unfaithful to her husband-to-be. They were greatly ashamed of her, and her betrothed husband, whose name was Joseph, had to decide whether or not he would have her stoned for her apparent infidelity. If he would have accused her before law, then she would have been stoned. But Joseph, the Scriptures tell us, was a just man, and Matthew 1.19 tells us that he was going to put her away privily. In other words, he was not going to accuse her before law, but rather he was just going to put her away very privately, that there was not going to be a marriage anymore, but that she would not be stoned for her apparent infidelity. Until one night, Matthew one twenty tells us that Joseph had a dream and the Lord appeared to him in this dream, telling him that this child that was in Mary that was conceived in her was conceived of the Holy Ghost, that he should not be afraid to take her as his wife, and that he should raise this child. And Joseph, the scriptures telling us, being that just man willingly obeyed the commandment of the Lord and took Mary to be his wife, and knew her not until the time that the child was delivered. It's about nine months later. According to Luke 2, 1 and 2, the decree went out that all the Roman world would be required to go to the place of their birth for a census. Now, in the King James Bible, you can see behind me, the word there says that all the world should be taxed. This taxing would actually not take place for likely several more years as history bears out. And this translation, this word can mean tax, but it can also simply mean a census, You take a census of who you have in order that you know who you have so that you can then tax them later. If government, I mean, government hasn't really changed in all these years, right? People are still being the way they are. The the Roman government probably said, oh, don't worry, you're not being taxed. We just want to see who's who. And then it would be a couple years later that they said, oh, by the way, now that we know who's who, we're going to tax you, right? That's how governments work. So that's... Likely, what happened here, they had a census. So each person is going to the place of their birth for a census. Let me just stop here for a moment. As a brief side note, when we see things like this in Scripture, when we see apparent contradictions, when I was studying out this passage, I'd never really saw this before, the whole idea of tax and the fact that the taxing would not have happened at this time. And as we consider this contradiction, it's important to understand how we handle contradictions when we come across them in the Bible. First thing what we must do is begin with what we do know. And this is what we know. We know that God's Word is inerrant. There are no places in God's Word where it contradicts or where there are inaccuracies. Everywhere, that the Bible touches, everything that the Bible touches, it is accurate concerning history, concerning science, geography, theology, the Bible is inerrant. We also know that the Bible is preserved, that God has ensured that the scriptures we have today are also inerrant, just as they were when they were inspired in the original text. Now, that being said, what we know then is that when when we see a perceived contradiction, The problem is not our Bibles. The problem is our understanding. Now, maybe it's the way we've read the text. We don't understand it. Maybe it's what we know about history. We just haven't learned enough about history to see how it meshes with the text. Maybe it is that a person who translated our Bible chose the wrong word, like we see here. This should not shake our faith. This should not... Uh, cause us to go into panic mode. If there is a seeming contradiction between what is what we perceive to be accurate and what the Bible says, either what we perceive to be accurate is wrong or our understanding of it is wrong. So we know that the Bible is not incorrect in this issue of history as it's not incorrect in anything else. In this case, it appears to be that the King James translators chose a word. They chose the word tax. This is not an incorrect translation of this word. However, as the next 400 years of history has gone by, we have learned from history that this man Cyrenius, that the taxing that first happened when he was governor of Syria, that this taxing happened around the time that the book of Acts was written, not around the time that Jesus was born. And so we go back to this word, that says taxing. That was a fine translation. And we recognize that the Bible wasn't wrong, the word is accurate, but that, we, we, uh, that the King James translators had the wrong flavor when they translated it. And this shouldn't bother us. This shouldn't concern us. We at Legacy Baptist Church use the King James Version and we do so because we recognize that the Greek text that underlies it is historically and philosophically superior to the text that underlies the other versions of the Bible. We also recognize that the council of men who translated the Greek and the Hebrew texts into its English form in the King James Bible were men of superior piety, knowledge, and intellect to anyone in the field of translation today. Do the study and you'll find that to be true. This being said, we are under uh, no circumstance of the assumption that this translation is in and of itself infallible. That those men on the council who translated this into English got it all right the first time. And we know that because the King James translators gave us hundreds and hundreds of marginal notes that said it's translated this way, it could be translated that way. It could mean this, it could mean that. And so they in and of themselves openly admitted that they did the best job they could through the providence of God and yet they never claimed infallibility for themselves. So we are loyal to the reality that God has preserved His Word in the Greek and in the Hebrew and that godly, knowledgeable men have reflected it properly for us in many translations. We recognize that the text, the Greek text behind the Modern translations is a different text, which is why we use the King James translation. But where we see these apparent contradictions, where we see these apparent confusions, we can rest in the fact that it's not God's mistake. Somewhere along the line, it was ours. Just a little side note there. So there's a census. Joseph and Mary must travel for this census to the place of Joseph's family's birth. And the Bible says that Joseph was of the house and lineage of a man named David. You all know of him as King David. And so they went to the place of his birth, which was Bethlehem. So it was when they got to Bethlehem, the scriptures tell us in Luke 2, 6 and 7, that the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. Mary went into labor and the scriptures tell us that because there was no room for them in the inn, she gave birth in a stable and laid Jesus in a manger. Thus Jesus fulfilled the promises of the prophets that out of Bethlehem would come a king of the Jews, a man despised and rejected of men, a man of tremendous humility, of humble origins, of humble birth. He would be a king But a king who would come in humility. The privilege of rejoicing over the birth of Messiah was shared by very few on that night. In fact, the scriptures tell us that the only people that were there that evening were a group of shepherds who had been watching their flock outside the city of Bethlehem. Bethlehem had always been a shepherd's town, right? David was a shepherd. It had always been a shepherd's town and this group of shepherds faithfully performing their duty to watch over their flocks were called by the angels to rejoice with the parents of Jesus over the birth of their Savior who is Christ the Lord. And as the angel declared this great proclamation, he said, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So the shepherds went and they saw this child and they rejoiced over this child and they made known to all who would hear that a child has been born who is the King. Most notably absent from that evening were wise men who prior to biblical church tradition um, did not make it that evening to see little Jesus in the manger. The Bible tells us, continuing the passage in Luke, that eight days after Jesus' birth, he was circumcised according to the law and given that name, Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And then when the days of Mary's purification was fulfilled, and according to the law, for a man-child, she would have had to have waited 40 days to become clean, Once those 40 days were fulfilled for her purification, Joseph and Mary took Jesus and went to the temple in Jerusalem. And they went to this temple in Jerusalem to consecrate this child unto the Lord. According to the Mosaic Law, the firstborn child in any family was the Lord's. However, the family had the right and the privilege to take that child and to sacrifice on the altar either a lamb or two pigeons, two doves, And in doing so, they could redeem him from the Lord, buy him back to themselves to raise him. And so they went and they sacrificed these doves. And we'll come back to the events surrounding their time in Jerusalem in just a few moments. And the scriptures tell us in Luke 2.39 that following their dedication of Jesus in the temple, they went back to their own city of Nazareth. Now, the rest of the infancy of Jesus Christ is found in the book of Matthew to fill in these immediate gaps. Wise men, the scriptures tell us, came from the east. Their number is not known. Tradition tells us three because they brought three gifts, but we don't exactly know how many came. It's likely that these wise men had been looking for this star and this Messiah since the days of Daniel who was the greatest of the wise men of the East, who knew of his Messiah to come and who must have been eagerly awaiting his arrival. And so these wise men had been looking for this star, this star that would indicate that the Messiah had been born and when they found it, they immediately came looking for him and they stopped before the king. Makes sense. They wanted to check in and they asked him, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and we are come to worship him, Matthew 2.2. Well, this Herod happens to be Herod Antipater. And history bears out that this man, Herod, was an interesting man. He was a very charismatic man, a man that people liked. But he was also a very stern ruler. He was not a man to be crossed. He was not a man to be trifled with. He was certainly not a man to abide rumors of a coming king of the Jews. He was not interested in his throne being threatened, in his rule being threatened, in his legacy being threatened. But being the charismatic and vicarious man he was, he spoke very kindly to these wise men of the East. He checked with his own advisors who said, yes, indeed, the prophecies tell us that there would come a child out of Bethlehem who will be called King of the Jews. This child must be in Bethlehem. So Herod says, okay, that's where you'll start, wise men. Bethlehem's the place to go. That's where the prophecy says he'll be born. You go to Bethlehem, you find him, and hey, when you find him, you be sure to come back and tell me so I can worship him too. Herod, of course, desiring not to worship this young child, but to kill him. These wise men left Herod's audience and the Scriptures tell us that a star, the same star that they saw in the east, went before them till it stood over where the young child was. Now, tradition tells us that this city was Bethlehem, but the Bible indicates something very different. The Bible tells us quite clearly that some 40 days after Jesus was born, they went back to Nazareth. And we'll find in a moment, and you'll see the Scripture that proves it, that Jesus was probably around one to one and a half years old when the wise men came looking for him, when they finally caught up to him. And so they were immediately directed toward Bethlehem, but that star directed them toward a different place, that being the city of Nazareth. The wise men find this child there, likely better than a year old at that point, and give him three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, gifts of a king. The angel then warns the wise men in a dream not to go back to Herod, not to tell him where this child was. And so they go back a different way and then the angel warns Joseph in a dream to take this child and to flee to Egypt where he would stay until those that seek his life are dead. Herod, recognizes that the wise men fooled him. These wise men did not come back as they said they would. They weren't going to report to him whether or not they found this child and where he was. So Herod pulls out all the stops to make sure that this child would be killed. And he orders that every child under the age of two years old be killed in Israel. Because, hey, if they're all dead, then this king must be dead too. And the reason why he ordered two years old and under is because that was the time that he had diligently inquired of the wise men as to how long ago they'd seen the star. The star had appeared two years prior. And so it's likely that Jesus Christ was a little older than an infant. We certainly would see the contradiction, right? If the wise men saw him on that night, then there wouldn't have been time for the dedication, the circumcision, all those things. He would have had to flee. And so... We recognize a little bit of a difference in the history of the Bible and the tradition. That's okay. But when we come to church traditions, it's always important that we correct traditions with the Bible. We don't try to correct the Bible with tradition. Now, what I'd like us to do for our time, now that we've talked about the story of Jesus Christ's birth, of His infancy, of the things that that happened surrounding His birth, I'd like us to take the rest of the time to consider some of the ways in which these angels and these men described this Christ child. Who was He and who would He become? And we begin in Luke 1.35, You may turn there if you'd like. We'll be turning to several other passages, uh, going back and forth between Matthew and Luke. And of course, many of the passages, most of it will be on the screen behind me. We begin in Luke 1.35, and what we see first of all is that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Luke 1.35 tells us this, The angel answered and said unto her, speaking to Mary, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also uh, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. The woman Mary is confronted by the angel Gabriel who tells her that she is with child of the Holy Ghost. We spoke of that already. As a child born of a mother, he would indeed be a human in flesh. But as a child conceived of the Holy Ghost, the Scriptures tell us that he would also be the exclusive one to hold this title, the Son of God. This is not a descriptive term of Jesus. Jesus Christ is not described as the Son of God. He is entitled the Son of God. We talked about this a little bit on Tuesday evening. The difference between us as sons of God and Jesus as the Son of God is that we are adopted by virtue of Jesus Christ's sacrifice. We are described as being the children of God. We are described as the sons of God. But Jesus Christ, it was not just a description. This was His title. He was the, capital T, the Son of God, indicating the exclusive relationship that Jesus Christ had with His Father, who is God. That Jesus is born of a virgin is essential to His qualifications for Messiah. Isaiah chapter 7.14 tells us this, Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call His name Emmanuel. That word we have found today meaning God with us. The One who would be God in flesh would signify His arrival upon this earth by being born of a woman, Who was a virgin. But let's take a few moments to understand the implications of this declaration here that Jesus is entitled the Son of God. Jesus is God. He is therefore the creator and the sustainer of all that is, correct? In the beginning, God created. The heaven and the earth. So Jesus Christ is God. Jesus is creator. Jesus is sustainer. Colossians 1 tells us that he upholds all things with the power of his hand. As a man, he had a definitive beginning. He had a definitive ending. But as God, he says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He is eternally existent. He has no beginning. He has no end. And so John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 tells us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is God. Jesus is Creator of all that is. And if Jesus is the Creator, then He is by default your Creator. You are His Creation. Now, we can plug our ears and close our eyes and pretend like we came from nothing. We can close our eyes and plug our ears and pretend like it's all random chance processes. We can reject God's authority. We can live with our heads in the sand. But it doesn't change the fact that Jesus is God and as God, we are accountable to Him. He is Creator God. He shall be called the Son of God. He will be veiled, he will be, excuse me, the veiled glory of the Almighty. He will come to do for us what we could not do ourselves. And so we see it in Matthew chapter one verse 23. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is being interpreted, God with us. You see there, even the I don't know if you could read it. Even the fleas can pretend like there's no dog when they live on the dog, but it doesn't change the fact that there's a dog. Even we can pretend like there is no God, but it doesn't change the fact that Jesus Christ is our Creator. And it doesn't change the fact that we are accountable to Him. God with us. As God in flesh... This young child would accomplish many, many things for you and for me. And these things that he will accomplish, he would accomplish, are declared in, at, and around his conception and birth. Jesus is God. One of the things he would accomplish, and the most important, is that Jesus is not just your God. He is also your Savior. We consider Matthew chapter 1 now. Verse 21, where the angel, uh, the Lord himself, is speaking to Joseph in a dream, assuring Joseph that Mary's claims are true and exhorting him to take Mary to be his wife. And as he does so, he says in verse 1, uh, uh chapter 1, verse 21 of Matthew, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. This child was not only going to be Emmanuel, God with us, God in flesh, but He was going to be the Savior of the world. It is one of the most grave truths, ladies and gentlemen, that we are all in need of salvation. Our sin has separated us from God. We are held captive to our own sinful flesh, the end of which is separation from God and eternity in a place of literal burning called hell. But it is one of the most beautiful truths that God has provided a way to be saved from the captivity of our sin, to be saved from the punishment of our sin through Jesus Christ. Salvation is a divine transaction between you and God where God accepts you as righteous in His eyes on behalf of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's a term that we often call in theological circles justification though this gift has been purchased for every man on the earth only a very small subset of humanity will ever receive this gift Bible tells us in order to receive this gift we must accept that gift by believing on the name of Jesus Christ alone to save us from hell to save us from our sins to redeem us from our flesh And of course, to accept this gift means to be humble, that we must first willingly admit that we are sinners, that we must willingly admit to our need for a Savior and our inability within ourselves to meet that need, and then openly confess that Jesus Christ is the only one who can meet that need. And the Scriptures tell us that the moment we accept this gift, that we will be saved the moment we accept that jesus christ is the savior the moment that we set aside anything or everything else that we're trusting in to earn favor with god or to get us to heaven one day and we accept that only the sacrificial death of jesus christ on the cross and his resurrection three days later is sufficient to redeem us from our sin scriptures tell us that when we accept that gift for ourselves we're saved Saved from the power of sin over our lives. That sin no longer has power to determine what we're going to do in this life. That we are unplugged from our flesh so that we can please God. So that we can serve God. So that we can do right. We're also saved from the penalty of sin. That whereas we were on that broad road that leads to destruction in hell, The Bible says that when we accept Christ as our Savior, we are changed from the broad road unto perdition and destruction to the narrow road that leads unto life. And then finally, we know that one day not only will we be saved from the power of sin, not only from the penalty of sin, but also from the presence of sin. That one day we won't have to fight it any longer. We'll have those resurrected bodies spoken of in 1 Corinthians 15. New completely without a sin nature. And if you have believed on the name of Jesus Christ, rejecting anything and everything else that could possibly, you might consider, to get you to heaven or to have a true relationship with God, then you have been saved. And so we read in Romans 5.21, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ, our Lord. King David, as he thought upon the blessedness of his own forgiveness from his sins, wrote this in Psalm 32, verse 1 and 2. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. He'll go on to say in verses 10 and 11, Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy all ye that are upright in heart. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior which is Christ the Lord. This is what Jesus Christ came to do. Jesus is your God, but Jesus Christ is your Savior. But there were more declarations of this Christ child and His purpose in the days following His birth. Jesus is not just our God. Jesus is not just our Savior. Jesus is our Comforter. Jesus is our Comforter. In Luke chapter 2, we end up back in the temple in Jerusalem. And as Mary and Joseph are in the temple there to dedicate their child and to redeem him unto the Lord, they meet an old man named Simeon. And the scriptures tell us that Simeon was a just and devout man. Luke 2.25 tells us that he was in Jerusalem waiting for something. May I put it this way? He was waiting for someone. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, the verse tells us. The word consolation in the text literally means comfort, alleviation from misery or distress, encouragement. The Holy Ghost had revealed to him that he would not die until he first saw this comfort in the form of the Lord's Christ. As Joseph and Mary brought their young child only now in his second month into the temple at Jerusalem, Simeon immediately recognizes that this child was the comfort that he and all Israel had awaited. You know, life is filled with troubles and cares. The scripture calls it by many names, trial, tribulation, affliction, suffering. In this life, you will have troubles. It's, it's unavoidable. You will face crisis. You will face trauma. You will face loss. You will face disappointment. You will face hurt. You will live to see the ones that you love make wrong choices and you'll watch as they suffer the consequences of those wrong choices. You will live to see ones you love pass from this world to the next. You will face loss. You will be hurt by those you love. Things will not always go your way. You'll face trials. You may face difficulties that will push you to the very edge of your perceived human endurance and capacity. But while Jesus, the consolation of Israel, walked upon this earth, in John 16, verse 33, He said this, These things have I spoken unto you, that in Me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus didn't say, Fear not, if you believe in me, you'll be free from all trials and troubles. Jesus didn't say, Fear not, if you're a Christian, you'll always be happy and healthy and wealthy and wise. Jesus said, In this life you will have tribulations but I'm telling you now that you can have peace in me in the midst of your tribulations. I'm telling you now, he says, that when the worst comes upon you, when you find out that next terrible thing that that has happened... When, when that next difficult circumstance comes into your life, Jesus Christ says, you don't have to fear. You don't have to worry. You don't have to get angry. You don't have to get anxious because in me you can have peace. Why? Because I have already overcome the world. And what is the victory that the Bible tells us overcomes the world? It's found in 1 John 5, verse 4. We'll be there in the... Three Tuesdays from now, I guess. Let's we'll talk about that after the service. 1 John 5 4 says this For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. We overcome the world. We overcome the trials of the world, not because we're strong, not because we have a lot of money. Not because we have great intellect. We overcome the trials and the troubles and the the disappointments of this world and we still have peace because we put our faith in Emmanuel. God with us. And He has come overcome the world. If He has, then we can too. So Jesus is our God. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is our Comforter. One more as we wrap up this morning. Jesus is our light. We sang the song that the Son of Righteousness will come with healing in his wings. Hark, the herald angels sing. We went to Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, and found that indeed it is speaking of the light, the Son of Righteousness, who would shine his light upon the world and it would bring healing. And as Simeon continues to speak of this child, he says in Luke 2.32 that this child would be a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Light is the opposite of darkness. In fact, if you were to look up in the Bible, I mean in the Bible, in the dictionary, Bible doesn't have definitions, uh, defines things, but if you were to look up in the dictionary, the, the definition of darkness, do you know what you'd find? The absence of light. The absence of light. So light and darkness are opposites. It is only by light that men can see their way. A man devoid of light is a man devoid of direction, of perception, of understanding of the world around him. Jesus said in John, or the scriptures say, it wasn't Jesus speaking. The scriptures tell us in John 1.4, it was certainly God uh, through inspiration. In him, Christ was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus would say this time in John 3.19, and this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Jesus would say in John 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Jesus would say in John 12 verse 46, I am come a light into the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness, Jesus came as God, as Savior, as Comforter, as Light. He came to illuminate your heart to the realities of this world and the realities of the world to come. These things we see with our eyes, we feel with our hands, I taste, I feel, I see, But one day it's all going to burn up and be gone. One day we will wake up from this dream that is life, physical, material life, and we will awake unto eternal life. We will awake from our transient dream and we'll wake up at home. There are things that are eternal that when all else is gone, they will Remain. These things are more real than anything you can see with your eyes or feel with your hands or hear with your ears or taste with your tongue. This life is little more than a transient dream. But men who walk in darkness, they can't see that. They don't understand that this life is not all there is. They don't understand. And so they try to make things up, Right? They try to, to, to make up this idea of reincarnation. We'll get another one and another one and another one. Or they, they try to make up this universalist type God where everybody will one day be happy and, and even their perception of hell is, I'll get to party with my friends. And the reason why they don't see the reality is because they've rejected the light. And so they're looking at the world around them in the darkness of their sinful hearts. But we have the light. The light came in Christ. The light is reflected in our hearts. The light is taught in God's Word. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. And a light unto my path. He would say in verse 130 of Psalm 119 The entrance of thy words giveth light, it giveth understanding to the simple. Where God's word enters, whether it be the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, or the reflection of Christ in the Holy Scriptures, where God's word enters, there is illumination to reality, there's light. We see ourselves for who we are. We see the world for what it is and we see God for who He is and what He expects of us. Jesus is the Word of God made flesh and the entrance of Jesus Christ brings light. So we consider this morning the implications of that little child born in a humble manger to a poor couple in the most miraculous of circumstances. The angel in the dream to Joseph declared him to be Savior. Gabriel before Mary declared him to be the Son of God. Simeon patiently awaited the comfort, the consolation of Israel in Christ and declared him then to be the light that will lighten the Gentiles in the glory of thy people, Israel. He is your God. He is your Savior. He is your comforter. He is your light. And as we drive around the next couple of weeks and we see the nativity scenes and we we hear the Christmas songs and we gather with friends and loved ones and we exchange gifts, let us never forget what it is that we memorialize in this time. Let us never forget the rejoicing that compels the gift exchange. The rejoicing that compels us to gather together with families family and friends and loved ones and to spend time together. The rejoicing that is characterized by the love that God showed when He sent His Son to be born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem them that are under the law. That as we walked in darkness, This child came and shined a great light into our hearts. Let's pray together.